So with all that said, I want to take a look at the scriptures uh, this morning. Uh, particularly, uh, we're going to be looking at two individuals. Um, we've been going through, in the Advent season, we've been going through and looking at uh, mothers and sons that prefigure Christ, uh, Mary and, uh, and Jesus. And the, the, the challenge, of course, with doing that is there's just so, uh, there's so many layers to how the Old Testament was structured. And we have so much going on in so many different uh, uh, eras and periods and lives. Um, last week, we looked at some really um, difficult passages uh, dealing with, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Jacob and his, his four wives and then uh, Judah and his daughter-in-law. And we're not going to recap that. You can just watch the video from last week. But um, Naomi from the book of Ruth uh, and Hannah from the book of 1 Samuel. So just to set the context of this, these are both uh, families living in the j period of the judges. Um, now, I was working on, I was going over some notes on the book of Ruth, uh, hoping to get them online, um, but I wrote them several years ago and discovered there were a lot of uh, archaeological uh, errors, and so I had to go back and correct them. So I, I'm hoping to have that done this week, and we'll post it on the, the website. Um, but we, there's a lot of debate about the date of the Exodus, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, whether they even did. There's, there's all these conversations. Um, but we do have what, what we, we have a, an end date. We know that this period of Judges, this period um, that we're going to talk about today, it ends around 1050 B.C. Um, it's the tail end of the Bronze Age. We call it the Late Bronze Age. Um, this is a, a period of time that's marked by um, really chaos. Uh, the major kingdoms of the, of the Mediterranean world at the time go through uh, cataclysms. There's earthquakes, there's falls of kingdoms. Um, and so there's not a lot of historical data for this time period. The Bible very much, the book of Judges, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and First and Second Samuel uh, are really the, the best historical records we have for the time period. Um, and what we can draw from them is that this was a difficult time. Uh, this, is, this is a stateless period. Um, and by stateless, what we mean is there's no central government. There's no, um, there's no ruling government in place that is taking care of everything that's going on. Give me just a second. One of the other cameras was echoing. It was driving me nuts. Um, so this is a, a stateless period, and it's, it's, there's no kingdom. There's nobody dominating the area. There's nobody in control. Um, and so what? where is that? Sorry, folks. i got to deal with this. Zoom is wonderful, but it's driving me nuts. Okay, let's try it now. There, now it's gone. That's good. That was, that was going to drive me batty. I apologize for that, but that was throwing me off. Um, so this is a stateless period. So there's no central government. So what happens is there's uh, basically... 
the rulers of houses and clans, they're, they're pretty much the authority. And how things are is how things are. Um, and in particular, we're going to be looking at um, situations that happen in the Judean highlands around Jerusalem, uh, the town of Bethlehem, uh, which is where Jesus is, is born, according to the Gospels, has a very long history. And the, really, the first place that it, it takes center stage is in the book of Ruth. And so we're going to look there, um, the book of Ruth, and I'm not going to spend the whole time in this book, but uh, Ruth opens with this. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Literally, there was the land was evil. The land refused to grow uh, crops. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And so what he would have done is he would have gone east, he would have gone down, out of the highlands of Judea, down to the Jordan River, uh, some of the lowest points in the earth, then back up bank of the Jordan River to what's called the, the plains of Moab. These are uh, just, they're plains. I mean, that's what they are. Um, and they're just large areas uh, really suited for raising uh, sheep and goats. And Moab is really kind of an anarchic place. There's no king, there's no ruler, there's no anything. But this man goes to the plains of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, which means death and disease. Those are great names. Um, they were Ephrathites. That, it, that means that they were uh, probably descended from the original inhabitants of Bethlehem. So they're part of Judah. They're, they're part of the, the people uh, of Israel. Um, but the fact that they're called Ephrathites indicates that, that they are uh, Canaanites, that they, they probably are from families that lived there before the Hebrews came, and they become worshipers of the Hebrew God. So they become incorporated into the tribe of Judah. Um, they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the, son, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died, so the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now I'm not going to recount everything that happens in the book of Ruth, but basically um, you can go back and read it. It takes about 15 minutes to read. Uh, Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem. Her daughters-in-law decide to follow her. Uh, she tells them to go home. One, Orpah, goes home, back to Moab, back to her mother's house. Ruth, whose name means friend. Uh, Ruth refuses to leave. She stays with Naomi. She goes back to Bethlehem. They arrive there um, at the barley harvest, which means it's too late to plant crops. So they're, they're dependent upon charity. Um, and Naomi is confronted with a real situation. She's had two sons who were married for 10 years and ha didn't have kids um, and then died. And the indication, therefore, is that um, she, her, her line, her, her family, she has left is this daughter-in-law, uh, Ruth, who has chosen to stay with her. Uh, now, this world, there is a thing called leveret marriage. I mentioned it last week. And it is the idea that a family relative could marry a widow and raise children to the, the man who had died um, if, he had, if she hadn't had children. And the reason for this was that land rights passed from man to, to father to son. 
Now, there was provision for daughters to inherit land, but of course, Naomi doesn't have a daughter. She only has a daughter-in-law. So how is she going to manage uh, living um, with just this daughter-in-law and nothing else? Um, and through a series of events, she, Ruth uh, encounters a, an older man named Boaz, who's a landholder, who's a member of Elimelech's clan, um, and they get married. And I'm not going to go through the whole process of it. It involves a threshing floor and uh, uh, way too much beer, and you can, you can read it on your own. Um, but, but what happens is that they, they get married. Uh, Boaz uh, makes arrangements for them to be able to be married. And at the end of the book, in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. So this tells us immediately that the problem was not Ruth. Um, by the way, Ruth here, she's been married for 10 years. Ruth is probably in her early 20s. Um, so that gives you an idea of, of uh, she's still very much um, in the age of childbearing. And the woman said to Naomi, uh, she bore a son. The, woman the women of Bethlehem said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed, who was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, now, um, if you read that, you'll notice that this son, Ruth's biological son, is called Naomi's son. All right? She is the redeemer of Naomi. So she, uh, this, this son, uh, Obed, uh, he redeemed Naomi from the death of her husband and her two sons. And she raises him. She is his nurse. She provides for him. So although Ruth is his, uh, his actual mother, Naomi is, it's Naomi who passes on the land rights and everything to him. Now, that's significant in the history of the Bible for a simple reason. What this does, um, Obed is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. That makes Ruth uh, David's great-grandmother. Um, what it does is it establishes the house of Jesse, the house of Obed, as a powerful land-owning, land-managing uh, uh, group, clan, tribe, whatever you want to call them, in Judah. Um, because the land of Boaz, and he's called a mighty man um, earlier in the text, so he's a pretty wealthy guy, and the land of Elimelech are united in Obed. So David's father, Jesse, um, becomes a very powerful person. He's Obed's son. He becomes a powerful person. And this, this narrative, what it does is it legitimizes David's claim to the throne. He becomes king of Judah and Israel. Um, this legitimizes his place as the ruler. Uh, and so it has tremendous political significance. But it also has tremendous, I think, emotional significance and power for us as believers. God uses the birth of Obed to restore a promise to restore the order of things. Everything about Naomi's life is so terrible that at one point she tells everybody, just call me Mara, which means bitterness. Things are just going bad for me. I just don't care anymore. I just want to basically lay down and die. 
and yet God redeems her through Ruth. This daughter-in-law that she didn't want, all right, I'm sure she didn't want to marry a Moabite, her son to marry a Moabite, but her husband had died. Her sons had to take care of her in the middle of a famine. This daughter, she, daughter-in-law she couldn't get rid of. She tries three times to get Ruth to go home, and Ruth insists on staying with Naomi. This daughter-in-law who has kind of her own agenda with things, she goes and gleans in the fields um, of Boaz without telling Naomi. She just says, well, Naomi's going to, I'm not going to sit around and starve, and she goes out and finds food. Um, this daughter-in-law, who Ruth is really a, just a tremendous character, she becomes the restoration of the promise that Naomi thought had been broken, lost, and never regained. That's our first mother and, mother and son. The second one I want to look at is just a page over. If you just turn a page over from the book of Ruth, you'll encounter 1 Samuel. And this happens a generation later. And it involves a woman named Hannah. Um, And Hannah, unlike Naomi, Naomi is a woman who has lost everything. Hannah is a woman who has everything except a son. Um, She has a good husband. Uh, He takes care of her. Uh, Now, he has two wives, and the other wife is kind of questionable. She's always picking on Hannah. Um, but, but generally speaking, her husband takes uh, care of her. Um, he is, uh, he is, his name is Elkanah, um, and he is also an Ephrathite, so he's also from this Canaanite um, uh, heritage, but he lives in Ephraim, just a little bit north of Bethlehem. Um, they constantly are going to uh, the tabernacle at Shiloh, which is a, a holy site. Again, just a, it's about, about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. It's, it's, not, it's not that far away. This is a small uh, world that we're talking about. And every year he would go from his city, uh, 1 Samuel 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he would go from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And, and he continually does this, but Hannah can't have children. So Naomi has children that die and she has to be redeemed. Hannah can't have children, and and that's the one thing she wants. She has everything else except a child. Um, And and there's this moment where she interacts with the the priest, uh, a guy named uh, Eli, Eli, um, and he thinks that she's drunk because she's praying. That should tell you how spiritual Eli is. He can't tell the difference between prayer and drunkenness. Um, and he, he has two terrible sons who are, who are going to take advantage of the priesthood. And I'm not going to get into the whole uh, story. But, but Hannah is visited by the Lord. The scriptures uh, talk about this. And, and this, this event, uh, you can actually, if you go back and read the book of Luke, uh, you can kind of see shadows and echoes of, of Hannah um, here. Um, but uh, Eli says to her, uh, he finds her praying for a son. She, he thinks she's drunk. She tells him she's not. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 17, Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now, it sounds like he's just kind of given a summary dismissal. Just get out of here, lady. I'm embarrassed because I thought you were drunk. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. The woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They leave And in verse 20, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, again, I'm not going to get into the whole thing. You can read the story. Um, But she then, she weans Samuel, and then she sends him to the tabernacle as a servant. As a child, uh, just a toddler, he is devoted to the Lord. Um, And and she gives up the son that she um, 
so desperately wanted. So here we have Naomi who lost everything all right, and is restored to a promise through a miraculous relationship. And then here's Hannah who gets everything that she ever wanted and she gives him up um, because the Lord had given her to. All she wanted was to have the child. Now that she had him, she surrenders him to God, which is, which is extraordinary. And the thing that's going on with Hannah is that God is actually going to bring about the destruction of a corrupt priesthood through her son, Samuel. And, and this sounds, it sounds bizarre, right? We're talking about Christmas and joy and restoration and all this stuff. But here we have a miraculous birth and the entire purpose of this guy Samuel will be to bring down the priesthood, the order of the day. Now, the order of the day was chaos, all right? This is the time of the judges. Everybody's doing everything that's in their right mind. He's going to bring down that, that chaos, and he is instead going to anoint the king of Israel. He is going to bring about the kingdom of Israel. But first he has to destroy the chaos of Israel. Um, so Hannah, her barrenness, um, well, let me, let me say Naomi's barrenness, her not having a son, had everything to do with her leaving home and going to Moab with her husband, which she probably shouldn't have done. Her, her, her desperation was born out of her not abiding in the Lord. And God redeems her regardless of that, restores the promise. Hannah's barrenness is because there is an appointed time for this son, Samuel. And if he was born too soon, he wouldn't have been in the position to be what he became. Um, and he has to become an agent of the Lord. These two mother-son pairs picture for us, uh, in different ways, the coming of Christ. In Naomi, we see a world in need of hope. We see a mother who has lost everything, and God brings about a miracle to restore hope. And from, from that perspective, we as sinful human beings, we can look back at, Han at Naomi and say, God can work despite me. God can do extraordinary things, and isn't he amazing the way that he honors his promises? But when we look at, and we can look at Jesus and say that's what happens with him. When Jesus was born into this world, born into this world was the hope of all mankind. But then we can also look at Hannah, and we can see that hand in hand with hope is the destruction of man's chaos. God has to break down the world that we build for ourselves to build the world that he intends for us. And that's a hard truth. That's a hard reality. Samuel's job through his whole life will be to tell people they are wrong. Now that's quite a job. Uh, he will attack Eli and tell him he's wrong. Um, he will have to deal with the people who, um, who uh, take the Ark of the Covenant like it's some kind of war totem and carry it into battle and get it lost and goes to the Philistines. There's a great story in that and results in rats and hemorrhoids and I don't want to get into it. Um, but uh, but the, there's, he has to deal with that. Then he has, to, he, anoint, he has to deal with people that want a king, tells them they shouldn't have a king. They get a king. He's a terrible king. Then he has to get rid of that king. 
All through this course, Samuel's job will be to destroy the world that people want to give them the world that they need. And while we might look at Christmas and we might see all the hope and joy of Ruth and Obed, we need to remember that when Christ enters our lives, there are things that have to go. We, we do not have the, the, as followers of Christ, we do not have the right to hold on to our world and his world. There are things that have to be lost, to be destroyed, to given up. And we could look at that in multiple different ways. But I would just encourage you to remember that as we are in this season of, of Christmas, as we're in this Advent season and we're remembering Christ, we have to remember everything that the Incarnation means. Not just the stuff that makes us smiling and happy and put on red fur-skinned hats and dance around and go a-wassling. All right? Because we love a-wassle, don't we? Um, but, but rather that there are things about Christ entering our lives that make us uncomfortable, that have to be broken down. There's repentance. There's, there's trial. There's difficulty that we have to face. It's not all smiles and rainbows to be a follower of Christ. It is joyful, but sometimes it is hard. I want to close... Um, and very briefly, I, I just want to, I'm going to sing the song that Greg wrote. I'm going to do my best to sing the song. We're going to see how it works. But if you don't know Greg's story, um, it was extraordinary for me to be able to spend 16 years in partnership with Greg. Uh, because, uh, you know, you might say, you know, oh, the pastor, he's supposed to be the most knowledgeable guy in the, in the church and all that stuff. And, and first of all, um, thanks if you think that, but you're wrong. Um, I have, I have you know, studied the scriptures, but I have one set of understanding, and, and the elders, uh, the other men in the church, and the women in the church who have devoted to the scriptures, they, they have so much insight as well. Um, and the church really is a community. It really is a collaboration. And Greg came to the scriptures from a very different point of view than I did, because Greg came out of the Watch Terror Society. He came out of a, 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 what could be loosely called a Christian organization, a Christian belief that denied the deity of Christ, uh, denied um, the eternality of punishment uh, of, of the sinful. There, there's a lot uh, I could talk uh, at length about it. I'm not going to get into it into too much. Uh, devoted to works, uh, religion, uh, just do enough good and you'll be a part of the special people. And really uh, had some... Uh, interesting perspectives on scripture. Um, Greg came out of that through a miraculous intervention of God. There is no way to deny that God did this. Um, when you hear Greg's testimony, God did it. It wasn't Greg. It wasn't Lori. When you hear Lori's testimony, by the way, ask Lori about the Alpha and Omega, the, be the first and the last, the beginning and the end in Revelation. Um, and she will tell you about her journey to come to know Christ as her Savior. It's an extraordinary testimony. When Christ enter our lives, enters our lives, it might even say invades our world, there's both joy and there's things we have to let go. And, uh, and Greg's song um, that I'm about to sing is about his journey to knowing Christ, um, knowing Christ as he is. Uh, as as his Savior and Lord and God. 
And um, I, I want to just do it as our benediction, um, and hopefully I can get through it, and we'll see how this goes. One that most all know. Oh, baby Jesus. Gave in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Oh, baby Jesus. Some say he was God, incarnate deity. baby Jesus but how could a tiny baby be any God to me oh baby Jesus oh baby Jesus my life is in your hands before the world began you knew my name though I resisted you love me just the same Oh, baby Jesus In dry desert places I wandered all alone Oh, baby Jesus Would your incarnation Become my stumbling stone Oh, baby Jesus, my life is in your hands. Before the world began, you knew my name. Though I resisted, you loved me just the same. And oh, baby Jesus, merciful Father, he took me by the hand. He helped me understand, baby Jesus. Help me apprehend how God could become a man. And oh, baby Jesus. Oh, baby Jesus, my life is in your hand. Before the world began, you knew my name. Though I resisted, you loved me just the same. And oh, oh, baby Jesus. Miracle pursued us when God became a man. And oh, baby Jesus. Now I'm bracing Calvary because of Bethlehem. And oh, baby Jesus. Oh, baby Jesus, my life is in your hand. Before the world began, you knew my name. 
though I resisted, you love me just the same. And oh, oh, baby Jesus, I'm embracing Calvary because of Bethlehem. And oh, oh baby Jesus. My brothers and sisters, as we go into a, a broken world, we could weep. And I've got to be honest, I teared up a little bit when I was standing in the, in the lawn with Lori and, and uh, Micah and Bree, um, because all I wanted to do, and you know this, Lori even called me to tell me, she's like, I know how much this meant when you said it. Um, all I wanted to do was just embrace them. Not because I'm sad for Greg, because I got to tell you, I'm not worried about him at all. He and Ron are causing trouble in heaven already. I'm sad for us because we have to continue to live in a broken world and look forward to the day when we can join with them. You know what? I, I'm not, I don't have tears because Greg is with the one who called him to himself. And so let's, let's celebrate the Incarnation. Let's celebrate Jesus. That's what Greg would want us to do. That's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to look to him. So my brothers and sisters, go in peace, and we'll see you on Christmas Eve.